1: we can replace your lungs we can replace your kidneys people live with dialysis as we're sort of fixing all this stuff like we haven't figured out how to conquer the mind Dr. K is a Harvard trained doctor real life monk and massive twitch streamer who has helped millions of people improve
2: their own mental health we talk about the mental health epidemic in the west how to detect and resolve your emotional
1: issues and his perspective on the ultimate meaning of life you wake up one day and you have nothing left to chase and you are unhappy the true spirituality starts with one of the things
2: that I've been most curious about. By the way, I have to say, I uh, deeply appreciated our first conversation.
1: Ab- me too, dude. Yeah. I loved it.
2: I, If you're out there and you're watching this and you haven't seen it, or, you know, if you want to learn more about, more about me <laughs> and some Ayurveda that we got to talk about, check that out. But um. I didn't know as much about your background. I'd seen some of your videos and it was only through that that I was like, wait a second, this guy's a doctor and he's talking about Ayurveda. He seems uh, like well-versed in meditation. Can you tell me a little bit and the people who might not have heard of you, the, what I think is most fascinating is that East-West mix that you embody that sure. comes through in your work. So I just let's start there.
1: Yeah. So um, I was growing up. I played a bunch of video games, was sort of addicted to video games, basically failed out of college. Um, and then went to India to find myself. Mm -hmm. So at the age of 21, spent one summer in outside of Bangalore at an ashram studying like meditation and yoga and really just completely fell in love with it. I'd, I'd been going through life and like learning things about the external world. Like, okay, this is math and this is like history and this is Spanish But I was always incredibly frustrated because, like, I could not do the things that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Like, I couldn't get my mind to focus. I couldn't wake up on time. I couldn't exercise. Like, I had all these goals, but it was like I was just not in control of my body and mind. So what I loved about India is, like, learning a system that teaches you essentially Mm self-control and understanding how your body and mind works. And I think that as I, so then I spent seven years studying to become a monk. Wow. And during that time, studied all kinds of different stuff. So didn't really find one particular guru or tradition that I was ready to like devote myself to. So I studied at ashrams in, in India, um, a little bit in South Korea and Japan as well, and just really like wandered all over the place. Wow.
2: So, so you went from video game addicted to this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Cause it, and that was the thing is I, I remember being like a freshman in college and... What was the game you were addicted to, by the way? Or was it a genre? Uh, so I played a ton of Diablo two and a okay. ton of Warcraft three. So yeah. like I was, I wanted to be one of the best Warcraft three players like in the world when I was a freshman in college, which is a terrible idea.
2: Okay. Then those games are, yeah, they don't end easily. So I can see how getting sucked into them. It, yeah. it doesn't stop. Absolutely. I was addicted. I, mean, I wouldn't have called it that time to Starcraft two. I, I yeah. mean, I remember I was up at 4am playing one game and I'm, I'm a kid. And the only way that I stopped is after just the self-loathing that I felt I had to eject the game and snap it in half. And that was, then I woke up in the morning, immediately regretted it. What have I done?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hilarious, actually. One of my good friends from residency, who's now CEO of Cerebral, um, told me the same exact story. So wow. him and his brother were playing too much StarCraft, and they made a pact, and they snapped their StarCraft CD. <laughs> and now he's like CEO of one of the biggest mental health startups.
2: It was one of the, the only ways that I was going to stop at that point in time, given the development of my brain and the options available to me. Yeah, But continue, please.
1: Yeah, so just wandered around India and then and started studying like medicine because, uh, like Eastern medicine, because I, I think that there, there was just a lot of information there about how human beings work. Um, decided not to become a monk, met my wife, fell in love, all that good stuff. And then uh, decided to go to medical school. So I, I did neuroscience research for a couple of years at Harvard, went to medical school, and then um, trained to be, become a psychiatrist, and then was on faculty at HMS for a couple, like six years. Mm-hmm.
2: And so you mentioned uh, on, in the conversation that we had that you have done sort of research into the efficacy of Eastern techniques.
1: Yeah, so like this whole healthy gamer thing was like mm-hmm. not what my plan was. So I was like really geared towards evidence-based complementary and alternative medicine. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like Eastern systems of medicine, there isn't a whole, whole lot of like evidence base for them yet. So people will say they are not scientific, but I think that's actually like somewhat of a ignorant statement. Mm-hmm. So they have very, very robust systems that have just not been studied. So that doesn't mean that they're not scientific. It just means we haven't had time to do the studies. Mm -hmm. And so if we sort of think about it, like meditation, for example, has been effective for thousands of years. We started doing research on meditation in like the 60s. And so there's a lot of stuff that, um, so what I was kind of focused on is, okay, out of all of this like alternative medicine stuff, what works and what doesn't work? Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of my focus. That's what I, you know, that's what kind of got me into residency at Harvard and all that good stuff. So you mentioned reflexology that mm-hmm. we both share a yep. passion
2: for. <laughs> uh, curious about that one. And what what have your findings been in terms of the broad strokes of eastern modalities that are useful or not are useful because I actually think they can be useful even if you can't find it in the paper that says it
1: but yeah what, what have you found so I think that a ton of stuff is very 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 helpful <laughs> and there I've seen many things from eastern medicine that would be considered medical impossibilities mm-hmm. so like it's super wild but like even if you think about something like meditation 160 years ago, if you said there is one treatment, and people made these claims, there is one thing that you can do that will improve all mental illnesses. And this seemed medically impossible because each mental illness is its own pathology, has its own neurochemistry, has its own genetic sort of stuff. It's impossible to think that there's one treatment that works for everything. Mm -hmm. But we literally have one treatment that works for everything, and it is meditation. Well. And the reason for that is because all mental illnesses, to some extent, exist within the mind. And what meditation does is actually, it's the practice of transcending mind entirely. So all the crap that is in the mind, like, no longer matters because you're kind of operating outside of mind.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So, and that's inclusive of like bipolar disorder and narcissistic personality yeah. disorder, like personality disorders and...
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, that's what we know, right? So now we have enough studies where people will do mindfulness for narcissistic personality disorder, mindfulness for bipolar disorder, mindfulness for mood disorders, mindfulness for anxiety disorders, mm-hmm. and they all show positive outcomes. Wow. That has a strong implication. And as you said, you know, th- these
2: are... When I think of the... uh The understanding, as you described is like, well, these are all very different things that happen to people that need to be treated with different medications. It has strong implications for how these sorts of things arise. And one of the things that you mentioned in the video that I really liked is that, you know, we've had this pandemic of COVID, but what we've had in the Western world and in a lot of the developed world, an epidemic of mental health illness, you know, it is is the most likely thing that kills uh, young men is themselves because of which is crazy, because if you look at, you know, watching Nat Geo, you see people in the bush. You ask them, you know, tell, tell me about self-hate. And they cannot understand yeah. the concept of it, right? What is life about? And they look at each other like, what is life about? What does and that even mean? He says meat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yes, yes, meat. That's what it's about. And then, you know, they go get the honey from the tree. And so do, I have I have thoughts on this, but I'm curious. What do you think is driving that? Is that a natural outcome of achieving some of the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy that people start being angry at themselves? Is it a function of a particular issue in Western society in the developed world? Is technology taking us there in a way that doesn't have to?
1: Yeah, so I think the answer, so your question is like, why are we having a mental health crisis? Yes,
2: is this like, is this necessary in, um, as you solve the bottom rungs and you're no longer hungry, do people just start having, you know, turning inward and feeling bad about themselves?
1: Yeah, so I I think the answer is kind of all of the above. Mm -hmm. So there's a really interesting story Um, and there's a really interesting observation. So if you look at all of the beings that attained enlightenment, so these are people like Buddha, um, and there are other like religious figures. So if you look at Krishna and Ram, these are considered in the Hindu tradition to be avatars of Vishnu. I think if you sort of look at it from like a not religious perspective, but an anthropologic perspective or a scientific perspective, there are some human beings that have been able to attain a certain state of consciousness where they essentially, like, a religion crops up around them and people believe them to be divine, right? That's what happened with Buddha. Buddha was, and so just perspectives on divinity and stuff, we call those people gods. Mm -hmm. But what we sort of know historically is that there were real human beings that were so, were different in some way and were so different and so profound that they, like, people thought they were, like, this person is on a whole different level. Yeah. And the really fascinating thing is if you look at the histories of those people in, in ancient India, where Buddha, Ram, and Krishna all grew up, there were four castes. And so Brahmins are the priest caste. They're the highest caste. So these are the people that are the closest to God. They do all the religious rituals. They also are the teachers of meditation. And below that, you have the Kshatriyas, which are the noble caste. So these, these are the kings. And the really fascinating thing is there are no, none of the priests ever become enlightened. Mm the only people who become enlightened are kings. And then the question is kind of like, wait a a second, why is that? Because Buddha, when he was like 10 years old, had a priest who would come to the palace and teach Buddha how to meditate. Mm. But that, Buddha's teacher was not enlightened. Buddha became enlightened. And the really interesting thing is what, what, I think the best explanation of this is that thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, so what happens is the priest comes to the palace in the morning, teaches the king, and then eats like maybe a wondrous meal, like a delicious meal, and then kind of goes back to their hut and sleeps on their straw pallet. And so there's like a seed of dissatisfaction. Mm. They haven't had all of their desires fully satisfied. And actually what happens with the kings is that they achieve everything. So Buddha was powerful. He was respected. He was loved. um, He had a healthy son. And so he had everything that he wanted And yet you wake up one day and you have nothing left to chase Mm -hmm. and you are unhappy. And that's when you really start to get screwed because we all think that, okay, like I'm unhappy, but if I get this thing, if I can get this person to fall in love with me, if I can make more money, if I can achieve this thing, if I can win the Nobel prize, we all have some kind of desire that has not been fulfilled. But what happens is as people start to fulfill desires, they start to... Wreck, they wake up and they're not happy, but they have everything that they want. and then they're screwed. Yeah. So the the true spirituality starts with the satisfaction of all desires. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's happening as a society is we've conquered a lot of problems. So uh, you know, two hundred years ago, the average lifespan was maybe like fifty to fifty five years. And then, like we developed dwarf wheat, and so like nutrition, we kind of conquered nutrition. And now like more people die of eating too much as opposed to like starvation. And even from a, a physical standpoint, like we've conquered the body in a lot of ways. Like I can literally like take your heart out of your yeah. chest, <laughs> hook you up to a machine and stick another person's heart into your chest. Yeah, send me on my way. <laughs> and you can live a normal life. Yeah. We can replace your lungs. We can replace your kidneys. People live with dialysis where they're like, you know, getting dialysis like three, mm. three times a week. And so as we're sort of fixing all this stuff, like we haven't figured out how to conquer the mind. Yeah. And so that's why I think we're seeing a real mental health crisis because people have their basic needs satisfied. Mm -hmm. I think that's like, as you
2: say that to me, it feels like a beautiful reframe, which is this is not merely, and I think it is an illness. It is the birth pangs of the next potential level of evolution for a lot of people. Does that... yeah i mean
1: i think that's a fascinating way to put it absolutely yeah because
2: i think i mean i have in the past when i've i've when you're talking about the buddha i don't claim to enlightenment but i i was had that moment where i got it all i had the thing and then it didn't and i was i never knew that i had been future projecting to this moment of having everything but when i got there i was like oh my god this is what i had implicitly assumed would solve the problem and it didn't and that was devastating and i got and what's so frustrating is i can't go back to that prior innocence Mm -hmm. of imagining that getting i I sometimes pray and wish that i could just think that another achievement (laughs) would would do it so i could wholeheartedly dedicate myself to it in the way that i did before
1: but i can't i I cannot unlearn there's something very comforting about chasing something that you don't have because it, it gives your life like direction right yes if I have this, then I will be happy. If I have, I've worked with a ton of people who are in like finance and and like entrepreneurship, and mm-hmm. you know they really like they really love. I mean, it, it's torturous, but it it's like how they form the direction in their life. Like I'm going to do this next. I'm going to do this next. I mean, I, I saw it in academia, right? Like you 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 know you start off as a resident. And you become an attending and then you've got like a junior faculty position and senior faculty position and then you want to be chief of psychiatry. Mm. And and so there's, there's always like ladders to climb.
2: Yeah. And then you take the ladders away and this is where I am. We don't need to go. We don't need to have another therapy session. But yeah, then I think that maybe what people in my position, I don't know if the Buddha felt this, but... It's what is my next? what fuels me to do anything. And then there's the fear of I'll just sit and do nothing if I don't
1: have that uh, hole, that lack that makes me move towards a thing. And, and that's actually where I think technology comes in because mm-hmm. what we're seeing with technology is that technology tells us what to do so easily. Mm-hmm. So they tell us buy this thing, play this game, this will solve your unhappiness. And so we're externalizing our attention and we're always being prompted to do something, right? There's all kinds of like notifications and, and CTAs and like all yeah. like the external world is telling us to be something else, to do something else. And so what's sort of happening, this is kind of what we see is like there's a loss of like purpose and direction in life. And that's because we've outsourced what gives us direction to technology. Mm-hmm. And the more that we externalize our attention, the more disconnected we become with ourselves. Yes. So as I look at particular ads and then I go out and I buy stuff and stuff like that, then it's not really me that wants that. It's, the, it's whatever the advertisement is that's convincing me that I want it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what I've felt in my
2: deeper levels of introspection is that it's easy to blame technology and say, wow, and it's true, like this is an asymmetrical game of trying to convince people to want things. You've got entire marketing teams fueled with AI that are coming at your limbic system. That is all true. And there's a trade that I'm getting something out of by buying into the consumption game. Like I like, I, I benefit from this in the way that you just described, which is it enables me to escape me, I get to then look to this purchase, this thing, this future achievement, and not address the fact that there is a condition that I have, you know, chosen or w- will not see through that is causing suffering at some point.
1: Yeah, so I mean, and we sort of know that neuroscientifically as well, right? So, like, as as long as I'm playing video games or even on social media, it's actually going to suppress my limbic system. Mm-hmm. Um, I I sort of felt this front and center where like I was failing out of college and. I could tell. So I remember like in Spanish class, you could miss a certain number of days before they knock you down a whole letter grade. And so at the beginning, I could get an A if I did well, right? But then I missed too many days and now the highest grade I can get a B is a B. And that was terrifying that I can't, this is my first semester. And I was like, okay, so 4.0 is now impossible yeah. in college because the highest grade I can get is a B. And then I had to escape from that into video games. Mm-hmm. And then the highest grade I could get was a C. And then the highest grade I could get was a D. And then, and so then I just, like, I skipped my Spanish final because the best grade I could possibly get was a D. And then I wound up with an F. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Is
2: there a healthy way to engage with distraction?
1: Absolutely. So I I think this is where you say engage with a distraction. So that implies intentionality. Okay. So I would say the the simplest thing about healthy or not healthy is who is choosing to do it. Mm -hmm. When the distraction controls you, when you can't choose to engage with it, like when it's engaging with you, Mm -hmm. then it becomes unhealthy. But distractions, like, you know, it's a really normal part of, like, healthy mental functioning. Like, we all want breaks. We all need to be distracted.
2: Yeah. I, I I knew that I needed to wake up earlier than usual, and last night it was midnight. I was like, I'm going to play League of Legends. <laughs> but it was a choice. It was a conscious choice. Yeah. I knew that I would have a little bit less sleep, but I would be ready. And uh, How'd you I do? thought of you. We won two in a row. Nice. If we had lost, this would be a far... I wouldn't have gotten any sleep. <laughs> the,
1: the, the, cha- the challenge with games at, at midnight is that you can't quit on a loss, and you yes. can't stop with a win. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, like, you know... Is it true? This is. This, we'll come back to it. The gamblers, they say, are addicted to the loss? Does that have any merit? Absolutely. So okay. so
1: there's a lot of research that actually shows that the reason that video games and gambling, the yeah. reason they're so addictive is actually the, de- the denial of a, of a reward. I feel that
2: because you're just like you said, like I actually can stop on a win, but I cannot stop on a loss. Yeah. That, is, that is where the compulsion is. Uh, one more, my eyes will be watering and
1: it's just, I, I cannot walk away with yeah. that. Absolutely. Because I, I think we sort of know that Um, So if you you look at the human brain and and what the brain likes, so we as a society value things that are difficult. Mm -hmm. So why do we respect, let's say, like doctors or lawyers more than like fast food workers? Mm -hmm. It's because their achievement is difficult. So we have this value system that rewards things that are difficult. Now, this is kind of at the cultural level and at the neuroscience level. So if you even think about something as simple as a child that's learning how to walk or even pick up an object. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: A child who's trying to pick up a ball will fail like thousands of times. And yet there's something in our brain that impels them to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. So anytime we have difficulty and we're denied a reward and then we get the reward, that's what actually releases like a very high amount of dopamine. Yes. And so the thing about video games is if if you win 100% of the time the game becomes boring that's
2: why i can't play diablo just <laughs> i can't yeah. get through the first it's like no play it 3 times and then you'll get to the hard part It's like i can't do this and not die ever yeah. it's just it's uninteresting to me
1: and and that's why these games like you know league of legends for example has been out for i, I think, think you'll over get a decade stomped half the time. <laughs> and, and you get yeah right so that's that's the beauty of like mmr calibration and ranks and stuff like that so they're going to keep you sort of in the 50-50 bracket maybe you're winning 55% of the time mm-hmm. or something like that and, and so it's the denial of that reward. And so you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. Also has to do with things like random reinforcement schedules and Skinner boxes and stuff like that where like, you know, I don't know if you're y'all are yeah, familiar. I'm familiar. Yeah. 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 Right. No, so- I'm, I'm the pigeon. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Pushing that button, just hoping to feel that the hit a dope. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> so you had asked me in our conversation and I got to tell you, it, it put me on a research rabbit hole. At the end of it, you said, what's going on with men's mental health? And I, I, Spoke to my perspective on it, but I hadn't hadn't thought about it in those terms, and I wanted to reflect back to you. What maybe just lay the groundwork? I think because I had to learn some of this through research. What is going on in men's mental health, and then what what do you think is driving the issues that we're seeing?
1: Well, I mean, you said you did some research, so here's what I understand:
2: Boys are, gosh, let's where where to begin. Um, The suicide rate for both boys and girls is going up. Boys are having more difficulty in school, they are they're, they're dro- They lost a while ago, they're leading college, um, they're more likely to be living at home with their parents after a certain age, uh, mental health issues of all different kinds and diagnoses are going up, and I'm not sure if that's because we're diagnosing more correctly more frequently, or if that's because we're actually seeing more instances of this. You got ADHD and all these other things on the rise, I'm sure you could add a ton to the list, but I, I looked at the boy crisis, I looked at a number of different books about this, uh, and was... My, actually, my thought was I wonder if young men in societies are generally the canaries in the coal mine because they're one of the most volatile demographics in terms of outcomes. Like if there's a war, that's your demographic that goes and dies. If there's a boom, that's your demographic that goes and joins Google and has wonderful success. So I, I wonder if, if young men are having unique problems or if they are just more likely to actualize harm on themselves given what society is going through writ large.
1: Yeah, so I I think all that stuff sounds accurate. Mm -hmm. I I think, um, so my take is that there's a bunch of science that Mm -hmm. we understand. So, but but I would say one of the key things that's happened is that the world has changed, but we have not allowed men to change or Mm -hmm. boys to change with it. So, you know, I, I was just talking to some friends of mine about who do they choose to engage in romantic relationships with. And even though we're – I think it's wonderful that we've, like, feminism has advanced and we've come closer and closer to equality. And so it's really cool because, like, if you're a woman today, you can choose to have a career, fantastic, or choose not to have a career. And both of those are, like, equally respected. If you're a man, I don't think that's the case. So people will – like, if you're a dude and you're like, yeah, I just want to be a stay-at-home dad. Mm-hmm. I, like, a, a, good, a very good friend of mine is a stay-at-home dad, but he's, like, the minority. Mm-hmm. and his wife is amazing and stuff like that, and they're very, like, understanding. Um, but, but I think what's happened is, is we still expect the same things from men, even though society has changed. So we expect, you know, a man to be able to provide, for example. But, like, that's becoming objectively harder. Mm-hmm. And so th- there's just a lot of stuff around the expectations. So th- the world has changed, but expectations of men have not changed, and we have not adapted the way that we treat boys and men. Mm-hmm. which is precisely why, I mean, male suicide has actually been four times as common as women for decades. I mean, that's been there for a long time. So there's always been some kind of problem here. Yeah. But there's also other kinds of stuff like, I think um, emotional awareness is becoming more and more of a critical skill to survive in today's world. But there's this condition called normative male alexithymia, which is when men are colorblind to their internal emotional state. Mm-hmm. And the reason we call it normative male alexithymia is because all, all boys basically are taught this. Yeah. So boys, when they're growing up, are taught that one emotion is okay to express, which is anger. Can we
2: guess anybody? Yeah.
1: <laughs> right? And, and even like when I talk to like when I, I work with, you know, men or even boys in my in my practice, it's like the first thing is like, okay, what are you feeling? Well, I'm pissed. Yeah. I just got dumped and I'm pissed. Yeah. But there's, they're not able to understand that, okay, I feel shame because I'm not worthy. I feel terrified that if I got dumped once, I may never be able to find love or like no other future partner yeah. may accept me. But all we're sort of aware of is anger. Mm-hmm. So there's, there are certain things that as the world is evolving, like we're not really sort of supporting men and teaching them the skills that they need.
2: Yeah, I, I don't agree with th- this perspective I'm about to talk about, but I'm wondering if you can speak to it because there seems to be a camp of, I don't know if it's best to characterize them as red pill or conservative or traditional that say that, yes, the world is changing. And rather than have boys develop emotional skills, we need to recognize that that is not a really good for men to do. That's not what men ought to do. That's not how men biologically are. And what we need to do is have a society that supports more traditional gender roles where the man is always the provider and the woman, we need to... You know, she needs to get back into a more traditional role for women. I'm curious if you can speak to your perspective on on that because it does seem that a lot of people have identified the problem, but there's not a consensus on the solution. That oh, we should have more space for men to investigate their emotions, be stay at home dads. It's you know,
1: yeah. So I mean, I I think in a weird way, I don't. (laughs) this is going to sound kind of weird. So Mm -hmm. give me a chance to explain. I don't think they're wrong. Mm -hmm. So let's just, and it's like very simple. Like it, it's just, you know, okay. So if there's a certain set of characteristics in the world is a certain way, let's say I'm a certain way and society is a certain way that can work. Yes. And then if society changes, then either I need to change or society needs to change. It just needs to fit. I love it. So, you know, if, if we did, Go back a hundred years or two hundred years, then men would not need to change, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that, so, so, but I'm not advocating that we should go back. But I think that their solution is theoretically viable, yeah, in the sense that we could go back in time and start to ha- develop more traditional stuff, and then men would not need emotional awareness because yeah. we didn't need it back then. That's um, that's awesome. Because are
2: you familiar with Spiral Dynamics at all? No, it's the it's the idea that both human consciousness and cultural. Evolve in predictable stages, and generally, mm-hmm. like the pinnacle. Though people like the Buddha will just boom slingshot past it. Um, you can go as high as the culture that you're in. So it takes you like one of the stages is the power stage. You think of like Conan the Barbarian. It's like, do we need men to be more emotional in the stage of tribal warlords, and should they be talking about their feelings? That's probably maladaptive, <laughs> that particular yeah. stage. So that these things, that the match is so much more important than. And, and people can argue about which ought to change. Should we go in this direction with society or should we – I would argue that there's a – it's an upward spiral and that, that there's benefit to saying, yes, we can step into a more emotionally aware place. But I see that it could work as a traditional gender roles will, will go in this direction.
1: Yeah. So I, I mean I, I tend to agree that moving backwards is not good. So like just a simple example of this is that you know people will sort of look at uh, – if you look at statistics on divorce rates – so divorce rates tend to be higher in the Western world and lower in like places like India. And people will look at that and they'll say like, oh, divorce is bad, right? But what they don't sort of acknowledge are the studies that show that in a marriage in which divorce does not take place, abuse is much more common. Mm-hmm. Domestic violence is much more common. Sexual assault is much more common. So, so they sort of say that, okay, like marriage is good but they're not really looking at the data that shows what a bad marriage looks like. Yeah, And people will say, okay, single-parent households are destroying kids, right? Because like kids need a family unit. And there's actually good evidence to support that. If you've got two healthy parents who are there to care for you, the mental health of the child will generally speaking be better. Mm-hmm. But what those people also ignore is what if you have one abusive parent or one alcoholic in in a, in a particular society where like, okay, the, the parents say, I'm going to divorce you because you're an alcoholic. You are actually helping the kid by removing that influence. Yeah. So there's just like the effects of when people are sort of stuck in a marriage, it can actually be very damaging to kids because we're sort of assuming that those marriages are healthy, which they're not. Yes, and there are subsets of marriage. and This seems obvious, but when people cite broad studies, they can get lost.
2: Some sets of marriage that would benefit from, okay, we should stay together, work it out for the sake of the children, and others that would go, no, this is we need you guys need to split so that the children have the best chance possible, and you as individuals.
1: Absolutely. So I, I tend to find that you know people who are more traditionalistic. I don't I don't disagree with their theoretical mm-hmm. point that if you can maintain a more traditional marriage that is just has two parents. I haven't seen a whole lot of data that, for example, heterosexual couples like are healthier than homosexual couples or less healthy or anything like that. We just don't have a whole lot of data on that. But generally speaking, if you've got two healthy adults in your house raising a couple of kids, that's going to be better than one adult. Mm. Um, and, and so they're right there. I think just the, the thing is the devil is in the details, and they don't really look at the studies that show— OK, what actually happens when you force two people to stay together and there's domestic violence, there's substance use, there's physical abuse, there's sexual abuse, because all that crap goes on in India and we just sort of sweep it under the rug. Interesting.
2: Yeah, just, just for a little color. I don't know if this will, but the spiral dynamics, it, it, it names stages based on color. So the one stage that they go in, in order, this is like the middle of it, is blue, orange, green. Blue is what you would associate with, you could call it the dark ages or like medieval times, which is authoritarian uh, top down, hierarchical, uh, patriarchal, and that would be a more you know traditional male female relationship with rules about how things goes. Boys don't date boys, you know. Like there are there. This is how it is. Then society evolved into a capitalist mercantilistic society, which was merit. Whoever can win is the best. Win, and that's sort of where America's uh, center, I would say, is in this uh, capitalist meritocratic win (laughs) sort of mentality and the stage that comes after that is green which is based on multiculturalism heart-centered uh Mm -hmm. tolerance and it seems like there is this which direction (laughs) are we going to go but to your point that is taken well taken is any of them work you know you can have it's you need people who fit the context of their surroundings and the society and you're there's been happy families i think Always.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's really fascinating because sometimes when I, I talk, and, and we've done a ton of work with like people in the manosphere and, and red pillars and stuff like that. And I, I think that they actually have a lot of like good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just unfortunate that they're not, there's also a lot of toxicity associated with it. But um, one thing that I've sort of found is when people are really, really angry at society, they don't really realize. <laughs> that that anger doesn't actually come from society. It comes I, from- thank
0: you. <laughs> it comes from their experiences.
1: So, oh my so gosh. for example, the number one, I've worked with a ton of people who are incels or, or red pillars or whatever. And the number one thing that is common amongst all of them is trauma usually associated with a woman. Yes. So something just incredibly traumatic and crushing happened to them. And so then what they have to do is it, it's sort of like, it's a survival mechanism. Their brain adapts to fear and even hate that thing, mm-hmm. right? Like if I get bit by a snake, I'm not going to want to cuddle with snakes. Yeah. And I, and then I think they, they really fall into traps because as you start to like intellectualize and you point at society instead of like understanding your own bias and what effect it ha- has had on you, and then you really start to screw things up because if, if, if the problem exists within you, like no amount of changing society is going to fix it. Yes. And I've also worked with tons of people who will carry their problems with them. Yeah. Right? From one relationship to the next,
2: like relationship baggage, things like that. I see this. This is one of the most common things that I find in any political debate, argument, whatever, is people universalize their personal experience. And it seems as an emotional defense because it is, I can talk to myself, but it is much harder to confront the issues that you have with your father than it is to confront the issues that you have with authority, <laughs> generally. And that, that was one that I, like, I, I, could, I bristled under any authority and uh, daddy issues, period. And I don't mean that in a demeaning or diminutive way. I, I have had to work with and through them in order to see, oh my gosh, how many of my political beliefs or ways that I've lived my life or ways that I've set up relationships are coming from an inability to put the pain where it needs to be put, And then to move through it in that place. Because when you put it in society and then try to fight or push society, it can feel righteous and heroic, but you will, you know, it's, it's perfect because you'll never win because that's not where the problem is. (laughs) Yeah, right. So (laughs) in the same way you can pursue, pursue, pursue. uh, I was going to say the
1: same thing. So (laughs) then then you're back to a ladder, right? You're fighting this uphill battle that you'll never win and it gives you purpose and it gives you direction and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I think those battles can be worthwhile fighting. Mm -hmm. Um, There can be positive externalities and outcomes. Absolutely. But I I think that's where usually when I'll I'll work with like men, for example, who have very like toxic attitudes towards society, if we do some internal healing, they can still advocate for things in sort of a healthy way. You can still advocate very strongly, but you're not advocating from like a a place of emotional lack of control or lack of awareness. Mm -hmm. So you can still advocate for like males, male mental health, like equality for men, like reductions in male suicide, you know, things like that. Um and but you can just sort of do it in a healthier way. Yeah.
2: Just as another example, my girlfriend is in animal rescue and there's a predict people that I've seen in animal rescue, not all, but often have issues with people and they see they project pure innocence and love onto the animals that they rescue and they hate people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they hate them. And it leads to a tremendous tenderness and love that you see in the willingness to give, but also that there's it's not curbed with how can we best deploy our efforts? It's reactive uh, caretaking, and it makes them less effective that they could be at their mission. And I, uh, I see this everywhere. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's such a great observation. I'd never thought about that, but mm-hmm. that's, it, it sounds spot on. Uh, it, in and, my experience, it's... And, it, and I, I've seen this a lot with um, also people, oh, like children who are parentified. Mm-hmm. So they learn very early on to like let go of their own feelings and like take care of a parent and they sort of like focus on taking care of the parent. Like we'll see this in, in parents who have chronic illness yeah, and the kid kind of takes care of them and then they, they sort of change the way that they relate to human beings and in that way like they, they oftentimes will become animal lovers, right? Because- they're sort of used to being caregivers but there's oftentimes some degree of toxicity when it's like two humans whereas mm-hmm. as far as I know I mean I've met a couple of nasty cats but generally speaking <laughs> there's like less toxicity between animals and humans there's I met some cats that I would say <laughs> it's only cats I don't I, I don't think I've ever met like a toxic dog
2: yeah I mean I'm sure they exist but one of the questions I guess I wanted to ask and maybe this isn't healthy when I as I have gotten I think healthier in my mental place, I see subclinical issues, both in myself and in society writ large. You talked about some of the finance people that you've worked with that are com- totally workaholics. Uh, is it useful, do you think, to view the world through that lens of like, we have s- subclinical mental illness that is endemic to the way that most people live their lives? Or uh-
1: Yeah, so so let's just kind of define our terms. Sure. So So HG, so I'm a psychiatrist, but we, we now work with about, we've worked with over 14,000 people across 121 countries and we all, we focus exclusively on subclinical stuff. Mm -hmm. So let's understand like what that means. Yes, yes. So this is what I actually loved about India and medicine and how I kind of combine the two. So the practice of medicine is dealing with illness. Illness is pathology. It is something that is broken that is not working the way that it is supposed to. So a simple example is, let's say I've got diabetes. So my, my body is supposed to absorb sugar at a certain level, but my body has insulin resistance. And as my body becomes insulin resistant, it's unable to absorb sugar properly. And then my blood vessels literally get clogged up with sugar and it causes damage, microvascular damage. So this is not the way that the body is supposed to work. Something is malfunctioning. So when you talk about pathology of the mind, it's something that is not supposed to work that way. So bipolar mm-hmm. disorder is a really good example of this. People who are in may- manic stages will sleep between zero and two hours a day for a week. And they'll be very, very like energetic. They have tons of energy, but they're completely like disorganized. So they'll write a book that makes no sense that no one else can understand in this. a week. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is not the way that the mind is supposed to work. Now, the interesting thing is that medicine treats everything, I would say, below zero. So if you're like negative 100 to zero, trauma, anxiety, depression. But spirituality and the meditative path, meditation, meditation or mindfulness was never supposed to be a treatment. That's not what it was designed for. What meditation is supposed to do or spirituality is supposed to do is move you from zero to 100. Understood. And so subclinical stuff is in the space of zero to 100. And so what we really think about here is things like motivation, purpose, procrastination. Mm -hmm. Procrastination is not an illness, it's not a pathology. It's not actually like wrong, it's the way that our brain works. It's a feature, not a bug, which is why everyone procrastinates. Mm -hmm. And our brain just simply has this circuit where it discounts, it does future discounting, so things in the future are worth less. And that's smart, by the way. And so, you know, these are all the, the ways that we're supposed to function. Yeah. But if you want to go from baseline function to you know, optimal function, then we're sort of moving into the subclinical space. Can I ask you about the word supposed to? Because that feels like a very loaded term.
2: In our current society, what one is supposed to do is potentially work 90 hours a week at the, to the detriment of one's own heart. And I'm, I'm curious, how do you conceive of supposed to? And for people is it based on their own personal goals do you come in and say that there is an ideal platonic form of human flourishing that we would want to see how do you think about supposed to because sort of in my question was this idea that it's you're supposed to post on instagram you're supposed to be obsessed with the way you look you're supposed to do all of these things that i have found unhealthy in in my own experience
1: yeah so i i think that uh shoulds, Mm -hmm. which is is, when I work with people like clinically or in a coaching standpoint, like we talk about shoulds Mm -hmm. a lot. So where do shoulds come from? Mm -hmm. So shoulds come from a couple of places. One is society. So the more that you consume, for example, social media, um, the more that we see filters being used on social media, the more people feel like they should look a certain way. So Mm -hmm. it kind of reinforces that. The second place that shoulds come from, the most powerful place usually that shoulds come from or actually our family, is our family upbringing. Yeah. So that's when we internalize what, we're sh- what we should be doing. And I don't think shoulds are evil because, I mean, that's, that's how society functions. So shoulds are, I, I don't know if this is kind of a good analogy, but shoulds are the way that we know how we fit into particular pieces of society. Mm-hmm. So for example, I should wash my hands after I take a dump. I should share my toy. I should not hit my sister. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? So we are not, It. they teach us how to relate to other people. And the third place that shoulds come from is usually some amount of internalization of the other two. Mm-hmm. Where then what happens is people think that the shoulds come from themselves and we internalize that because I've been taught that I should be this, I should look this way, everyone else is kind of doing it that way. And then we kind of internalize it and then we carry that should with us. Yeah. So a big part that we sort of help people do is to understand where is the origin of your should. Yeah. And once you're able to reflect on it instead of being like automatic about it, then what we sort of find is that people can kind of in, like internally explore and decide for themselves. Okay, is this a value that I was given? Is this a value that I want to keep? Is this something that I want to move towards? And that's actually exactly like what happened with me where like I grew up the kid of two doctors and my dad when I was like nine years old was like I have an older brother and he's like one of y'all is going to be a doctor and one of y'all is going to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so I I went to college and I was going to be pre-med and I wanted to go to Harvard and all that stuff and I failed out because I was doing it because I should. Mm -hmm. And then paradoxically what happened is I stopped caring about what I should do and I really just wanted to learn everything that I could about how a human being works. Mm-hmm. And as I devoted myself to that, it was really bizarre. When I graduated from medical school, I went to Tufts for medical school. I didn't even go to the award ceremony because I didn't think I would ever get award, an award because I'm failing out. And I was like at the top of my class. Oh, wow. And I like wasn't even there to get it. <laughs> and I, it, I just never even looked at my grades. Wow. And so ended up matching. <laughs> and it was really bizarre because I, the, the second that I stopped caring about what I should do, And devoted myself to something that I really cared about is when I achieved all the things that I had set out to achieve.
2: I got to ask you about shoulds because I carry and I know a lot of people do not with all of them some of them I've been able to break quite easily but there are deep shoulds that there's a tremendous attachment to and this irrational fear that if I let go of this should I will in my own case become a person that is not safe to be around or like you know my morality is based on uh, not some internal connective tissue, but I you know, have been conditioned to be kind to other people. So for me, I'll, uh, just to, so that you have a bit of context, I struggle a lot with guilt. And I think, as I've sort of uncovered it, that I have this inner fear of badness. That if I don't have a strict Jiminy Cricket moral code that drives me, that I don't even know what would happen. That something would let go uh, and be bad and could hurt other people. And I'm curious of your perspective on, I guess, humans in general. Do you believe that people as adults are generally good when they drop their shoulds or does society descend into chaos if we don't have that heavy hand of morality that has been
1: uh, carried through and internalized from childhood? So so I I think whether it's healthy or unhealthy depends on, once again, who's in control. And Mm -hmm. this is the big thing that I learned in India. So a should is neither good nor bad. A desire is neither good nor bad. A coping mechanism or a distraction is neither good nor bad. Video games are neither good nor bad. Eating fried chicken is neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. Drinking alcohol is neither good nor bad. And and I did one set of of interesting sadhana, which means spiritual practice, with this group of people called the Agori Babas. So Agori Babas uh, they're like really famous like in terms of like pictures, so they'll be like on the cover of National Geographic. Mm-hmm. These are like the the Indian mystics that have dreadlocks. Oftentimes they'll like smoke marijuana. They live in, in cemeteries okay. <laughs> and they like don't wear clothes and they just cover themselves with ash. Okay. And what they a means fear and uh ah is like the opposite of fear. So they like yeah. have this spiritual philosophy of like no fear. Hmm. So even if you look at in spirituality, they're like, you should be pure, right? So what a ghorisadhana really is, and they're Shaivite, so they're like or Shiva oriented. And so they're like, we're gonna understand the nature of like how things work by engaging in all of the unhealthy practices mm. and so they, they do things like eat meat they'll drink alcohol they'll smoke pot and people are like wow that sounds great it's actually one of the most difficult sadhanas that you can do because they do it with an intense amount of awareness yeah and so the, the real thing about whether something is good or bad is who's in control is the should in control or are you in control of the should when I wake up on, yeah, go ahead. It just seems that, which I, which I, I don't know if I'm
2: discovering myself or projecting onto what you're saying, that there's this idea that the you behind it, that there is goodness in that, 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 that can, that, that you can be trusted
1: without the reins. Is is that fair to say? Or I don't. Yeah. So, so I'm, but, but absolutely. And this is where we get kind of into mm-hmm. a weird territory. It was so, you, but yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I, I work with a lot of like Sociopaths, actually. Mm-hmm. So, if you look at like some of the executives that I've worked with, even surgeons and psychiatrists. Thank you for going here because this is my question. What yeah. what if they don't have their shoulds? <laughs> yeah. So 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 I, I work with a lot of these people that are very successful, and mm-hmm. and even psychiatrists and so, uh, surgeons test highly on the sociopathy scale compared to the the regular population, and that too is somewhat adaptive because sociopaths are like not empathic. But as a psychiatrist, if you let your empathy. If you're hundred percent empathic with every single patient, you will be torn apart because you'll just be ingesting all of their negative emotion. So you have to learn how to put up those barriers. And I
2: think that's important for people who I'll speak for myself, who aren't
1: a therapist or psychologist. Yeah, as absolutely. Well. <laughs> so, so there, there's a lot of people, and and when when I work with sociopaths, what I these are people with like antisocial personality disorder, not disorder because it's not non-functional, but they're they can be like real, like nasty people in some ways is helping them understand, and these are some of the most moral people that I've met, but they're, they're moral not out of feeling, but out of choice. Mm. And so we sit down and we really think about, okay, what kind of life do you want? What do you value? Mm. They don't feel like a good person, and they're not controlled by guilt or things like that, but they make a choice that costs them, but they make that choice with awareness, Mm-hmm. And then they end up doing actually like amazing things. They're some of the best people that I know in terms wow. of the value that they provide to society. What informs
2: that decision? Is it a simple calculation of this will do better in the long run? If I go
1: friend in the friend or foe game, I will win in the end. So some people do that. Uh-huh. So that they're sort of, how can I say this, calculatingly altruistic, Yeah, where they decide that they're selfishly altruistic sure that altruism is the way to get the best stuff that i want Mm -hmm. but oftentimes when i work with them we go beyond that so we don't make a logical kind of thing what we really do is get to the self that is beyond mind that's what i'm curious what is your talk about the self beyond mind so this is kind of weird but because it's experiential but let's understand a couple things so who are you That has been a question I've been asking myself
2: every meditation. (laughs) Okay. So let's just answer simply. Like don't answer. What I used to say is I'm Charlie.
1: Great. I'm a YouTuber. I, you know, live here. Perfect, right? Yeah. So you're Charlie. You're a YouTuber. Mm -hmm. Were you have you been a YouTuber your whole life? No. Have you been you your whole life? Yes. Okay. So now this is interesting, right? So like, let's say I identify as a doctor, I identify as a dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll ask you a question. Would you identify as successful?
2: I would probably identify as successful.
1: Okay. In the past, would you identify as unsuccessful? Yes. Okay. So if you look and at, do I fear in the future that I may identify? Sure. <laughs> so, so this is the, the, and this is why I love the yogis because it, we can get into this. The way that they understand the mind is different from the West, but um, and I think it's much more helpful for a person, like from a subjective perspective. But so if we look at who you are, mm-hmm. I identify with certain characteristics. I'm a man. I'm a dad. I'm a doctor. But I was me long before. I was a dad, or I was a doctor, or even before I knew I was a man, right? Maybe I identified as a boy, and even before that, I, I'm always me. Yeah. So this is where, in the East, there's this concept of ahamkara, which is loosely translated in, in, into ego, but the technical translation is the sense of I. So if you say, I am dot, 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 and you write down all of those qualities, all of those are a part of your ahamkara. I am rich, I am poor, I am ugly, I am healthy I am unhealthy you all of those states can change yeah so but if you really look at it you've always been you you were you before you even knew your name was charlie mm-hmm. you were you after you were charlie you were you when you were successful you were you when you were unsuccessful and would you contend that if i had bumped
2: my head and had amnesia that the the me would persist like is this memory is required for
1: this or no not at all okay so so this is where and so all of the attributes that we identify with Even our, even our memories, even our, yeah, sure. Even our memories. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and this is where it's super cool stuff, but I, I, you know, I've had some interesting experiences in meditation with past lives. Mm -hmm. I've even done psychotherapy with people around past lives, which really changes the game of like understanding who you are because they have an experience or a memory or a trauma that is actually not of this life. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, well, hold on a second. What does that even mean? Well, let's, I definitely want to come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> but so if we sort of look at it, the attributes of Charlie, the qualities of Charlie can change over time, but you've always been you. There's something that's, that's always you, no matter whether you're successful or unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. And that is the true self. And that is sort of like the part that experiences everything else. Mm-hmm. So the, a good analogy is if you look at like, let's say I'm watching a movie All kinds of things can change on the screen, but the person who's watching stays the same. Whether it's raining or shining or whether people are happy or unhappy. Whether you experience emotions, sadness, unhappiness, happiness, all of those things are fluctuations within the mind, but the experiencer stays the same. Mm -hmm. So you are the one who was successful. You are the one who was unsuccessful. You are the one who's ugly. You're the one who's happy. And I have the capacity for... Any and everything is what it Absolutely. Yeah. And so the, the cool thing about, it, for people who are kind of lost here, you know, it's that, it's the part of you that actually doesn't change at all throughout the whole course of your life. hmm So that, okay. And I know
2: that it, this, I know that the answer to this really depends on how far out we zoom and how, because that's been my experience, at least when you zoom out. It's, it's all one. It's very simple. <laughs> and then you zoom yep. into varying degrees and you go, well, okay, there's separation at this level. But- Do you, when you think of that true self as you sort of described it, is there an essence other than spaciousness and potential? Is there, like what I have found, and maybe this is a different level down, that as I sink into trust and I let go of the shoulds, I find love. I find genuinely inspired, not calculated, unconditional Mm -hmm. love and i don't live there certainly but i've i've touched it and i've seen it and i'm trying to i, I it, it's a nice place to be and i and i try to bring it more into my life i'm curious if if that is the nature of the true self in your perspective or if it's simply it's unconditional love and it's also anger and hate and and maybe those things aren't even yeah uh, so so, to one so i
1: i think that th- those are both kind of true mm-hmm. so this is when we, things get really weird but so frequently Mm, give me just a second of course so generally speaking what tortures us is our mind Mm -hmm. so if you look at like shoulds where does a should exist it doesn't exist in your body it doesn't exist in your taste buds it exists in your mind your mind is what tells you what you should do so the first thing to understand is that let's say i'm walking along the beach and i'm not actually i'm so absorbed in the experience that i'm not even thinking so all of those shoulds, when I'm, when I'm walking along the beach and I'm watching a sunset, there are no shoulds in my mind. Mm-hmm. The second I start thinking, there can be shoulds. I can say to myself, oh, like I shouldn't be here right now. I should be studying for a test or I should be going to the grocery store. Or I should be working out or whatever. But shoulds are literally thoughts, right? That's what they are. There's thoughts, there are emotions, and those things exist within the mind. So there are states of consciousness where you are aware without the activity of mind. Mm -hmm. So being absorbed in an activity, even sort of beyond the flow state, states of meditation um, can achieve this where you're aware, but you're not thinking. Mm -hmm. Another really simple one that a lot of people are actually super familiar with is orgasm. So orgasm is a point where you are completely present and not thinking at all. Mm-hmm. The moment of orgasm is, is and, and, and I've worked with a ton of people who are like, you know, in the moment that you orgasm, you're totally fine. And then the second you're done, then all these thoughts start to arise, yeah. right? Like, okay, was it good for the other person? Yeah. Did I orgasm too early? Like, are they having a good time? Then all these like shoulds arise. But for that moment, it's really, really blissful. Mm-hmm. And this is where people think like, okay, orgasm is blissful because of all of these, like, let's say neurotransmitters or whatever, But what the yogis sort of figured out is anytime you can transcend mind and be aware, Mm -hmm. that is actually going to lead to bliss. And once you are in a state of bliss, the toxicity within you just disappears. Mm -hmm. So all the shoulds disappear, all of the entitlement disappears because you're just present in the moment. Mm -hmm. And this is why mindfulness and meditation try to help people to be in the present because shoulds don't exist in the present. You can't do anything you should in the present. Should is about the things that you should have done in the past, right? By definition, shoulds are things that do not exist. Mm -hmm. You can never have a should that exists. It's the stuff that was supposed to exist. It's the stuff that exists in the future if you behave the right way. Or it's the stuff that should have existed in the past. But shoulds can never exist in the present. Mm -hmm. And so as we move beyond mind, as we move into the present, as we sort of stop thinking and even feeling, then we experience things that when we translate into language we use emotional language so you'll say all i experience is love but it's not love the emotion it's like a different kind of love and that's why in the east we'll kind of call it like a transcendent love
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and then there's also like all kinds of other weird stuff that we've got like interesting studies about psychedelics and the breakdown of the self and and so one kind of random aside is that so human beings are selfish by nature, right? So like, I want to do things that are good for me. Once you realize that you are connected to all other human beings, yeah. selfishness becomes compassion. That is,
2: I'm glad, yeah. It's this increased sense of connection mm-hmm. is what, in the same way that I would never eat my left arm because I'm hungry, I, I would just never, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a kindness in me, it's not a moral code, it is a simple fact of yep. connection. Yes, I want, the, I want the best for my left arm and my right arm, and there, there's a unified connection, and I feel that extend beyond my body and extend beyond my family or my business or,
1: or whatever. Absolutely, it, and so when I work with the sociopaths, it's kind of weird. How do I help them be moral? Mm-hmm. It's like you said. It's not morality. It's just the simple nature of things where they realize they can actually feel that mm-hmm. connection. It's not empathy, though. It's kind of weird. Like They have to get to higher states of meditation to achieve it. Okay. And then, then it's kind of weird, but like even that self, self, what is selfishness? It's self-love. Yeah. But when you are connected to other people, self-love kind of becomes compassion. Yes. And it,
2: it, in, it, at the highest level, it sounds like selfishness is just beautiful. It's a, it's a. Absolutely. It, it,
1: and, and that's where even we get into the weird stuff, like, mm-hmm. you know, when you're saying is love, hate, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So at the highest states of meditation, what you experience is something called the Advait that which is a whole philosophy called Advaita Vedanta, which is non-dualism, mm-hmm. and this is where what we start to realize with this Advaita philosophy is that there's nothing good nor bad in life. All there is is karma. Mm-hmm. It is human beings who attach value judgments to things that are good and bad, which sounds like one hell of a stretch because people will say, like, "Of course, what there's about good this stuff. horrible thing?" Yeah, yeah, and so this is where, like, you know, I learned this kind of in an interesting way. Part of the reason that our brand blew up. So when I, when I ended up at HMS, like Harvard I was Medical, with a, yeah. yeah, Harvard Medical School. So <laughs> for those like, of you not in the know. <laughs> right, so, so I was surrounded by people who had like 4.0 GPAs. Yeah, I was like the kid with a 2.5 when I graduated, less than a 2.0 for the first couple of years. And if you were to ask me, is there any situation in which case a 2.0 or Fs are better than a 4.0? I would say, of course not objectively a 4.0 is better but the reason that our brand grew is because I was the kid who had a 2.5 who wound up faculty at Harvard Medical School and there's if I was yeah. if I was a kid who was a 4.0 that's just normal yeah
2: and not that you should wish more suffering cuz you'll find it in life but I've you know from struggles given time is often that that is not an uncommon experience that the depths are what make the next they make it. (laughs) They make the the story. Absolutely. So, so,
1: and this is where one of the things that I'm the most grateful for is actually like almost failing out of college Mm -hmm. because I know what it's like. And then when there are kids who are like almost failing out of college or failing out of college or who have failed, I can understand them in a way that I never would have. Mm -hmm. And we also see this, there's actually a lot of good science behind this as well, where, where, you know, there's this, this, an emerging area of research called post-traumatic growth. And what we sort of know is that like when people like under when a population undergoes genocide, some people end up with PTSD and some people end up actually being stronger from it and they find like purpose and meaning. And I've worked with so many patients who have like cancer and they'll tell me like, yeah, cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I'm like, bro, what are you talking about? And they'll sort of notice that this is just part of their experience in life they they learned to appreciate so much more they were taking things for granted they were really like chasing this hedonistic treadmill or the success treadmill mm-hmm. and so if you really look at human experience all, all it is is what is yeah. it can't be anything else and the more that you meditate the more that you begin to see that your judgments of what's good or bad actually comes from the mind mm-hmm. Totally. One trap
2: for those who are, that I have, I've listened to conversations like this and gone and skipped my, I don't have cancer, but like anger or rage and gone, find the happiness. And I, and I have gotten a lot of mileage lately out of going, be where you are. (laughs) Do not bypass this because one of the things I feel like is just socially conditioned, which is perhaps necessary for children is say, thank you. Say, you're sorry. Act out the gratitude, but there's not, uh, or at least I wasn't taught, like, how do you cultivate, genuinely cultivate gratitude? Well, I'm angry right now. Well, then let's be angry, get through the anger. And is there gratitude after you go through the things that we might deem negative experiences or states? So that was just occurring to me as you were.
1: Yeah. And I I think it it brings up a great point that, like, I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in society is thinking that some emotions are good and some Mm -hmm. emotions are bad. Mm Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes the, the work that we do is we, we try, like what holds people back is they run away from their negative emotions. You even said like, Hey, like, how do I, I have this guilt Mm -hmm. and you talk to me like it's a problem that Mm -hmm. you want to fix. Whereas like my honest answer to you is like, don't ever fix your guilt. Mm -hmm. That's a part of you. It's something that you're going to live with for the rest of your life. It's just like any other emotion. It's like having a tick Mm -hmm. or having like a kind of a knee that acts up. It's just a part of the way that you're built. And the more that you're able to accept the guilt and not try to change it, the less you will suffer from
2: it. 100%. And and as as I release into it, the information contained within is beyond what I understood. So it's it unlocks, oh my gosh, I see where this came from or why this felt or what this activated, the shame that this activated in me. And you had an interesting quote uh, at the end of our conversation, which was the only way for people to emotionally manipulate you is if when an emotion you have is tied to a behavior. Hmm. And so that, that is something that maybe fixing isn't the right word but that i've looked at and gone oh wow with guilt i have a click where response mm-hmm. guilt activated yep what tell me what i did i will undo you know like that and that has been um i've been easily moved and manipulated in that way and that is something that i would like to change which i see the subtlety of that's not fixing my guilt that is absolutely becoming conscious
1: of a pattern absolutely. yeah so so here's the problem is that if you, fix your, if you want to fix your guilt to f- fix your problems, mm-hmm. the moment you become guilty, your problems return. You lose control over your life mm-hmm. if you let your emotions control you. And that's what we try to do. Like We try to make the sadness go away. We try to make the anger go away. We make, try to make the guilt go away. But literally what happens in the mind, we do not choose what we feel. And so everyone goes, and this is why like, everyone's addicted to video games, is because they're trying to fix the negative emotion. And part of like half the work that I do is actually having people not move towards positivity. I think there's a ton of toxic positivity yeah. in our society where it's like, yeah, like, no, like everything's a learning experience <laughs> and like everything is a part of like growing and like if, if something sucked and it shouldn't ha- ha- have happened to you, there is no positive to it. I know it's kind of weird because we Be just talked there. about- Be yeah. with that, yes. So, so we just talked about Advaita Vedanta and this seems like a contradiction, but mm. it really isn't. And, and what happens is the more that you accept- like, sometimes I'll have people who have been traumatized, and they'll be like, yeah, I'm trying to learn or grow from them. And I'm like, fuck that. Be hurt. Yeah. Be hurt. Yeah. And it's unfair. And there's nothing good that will come from this mm-hmm. situation, and it shouldn't have happened to you. You don't deserve it one bit.
2: And through, the, and I've been there, through that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird.
2: Things, ev- yeah, and it's almost like we stick our, when, when we want to be here on
1: the evolutionary or, or enlightenment scale, we can't get we can't get yep. past here. Yeah absolutely so mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of weird because even speaking of wanting to be here mm-hmm. so there's a really fascinating story with buddha which is that he engaged in a lot of very very intense austerities mm-hmm. and he was like on the verge of death so he had like because people will say like fasting will help you attain higher states of meditation there's some good scientific evidence of that and so he starved himself to the point of death and so he was like stick thin and a young girl walks by with, like, a pail of rice pudding. And she sees that clearly there's, like, this, you know, monk or something who, like, really looks like he's in bad shape. His skin is gray. He's all skin and bones. And she's like, do you want some rice pudding? And he's, like, thinking about it. And he's like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I've been I'm on the brink of death. None of this shit is working. I've been studying. I've been trying to become enlightened for so long. It's all a scam. And he gets frustrated. He has the rice pudding. It's the most delicious thing he's t- tasted. And then he goes and he sits under the tree and he's like, fuck it. I'm done with enlightenment. I'm done with meditation. All this shit is crap. And he just sits there and enjoys the rice pudding. And that's when he becomes enlightened. Yeah. So it's kind of bizarre, but even the desire for enlightenment is a desire that will keep you from enlightenment. Sure. And the last thing you have to give up is the desire for enlightenment. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Yeah. What? Well, yeah. And so it's okay.
2: I'll I'll try to quit right now while I'm ahead. <laughs> so I wanted. There's actually a number of questions I've been meaning. This might be a foolish question. Are you enlightened, or have you? Is is that perhaps not even the, the right formulation of the question? It's a fair question. The answer is absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Easy. <laughs> and is your understanding that enlightenment when can be stabilized into
1: a semi permanent? So enlightenment is permanent. Okay. So so this is where if we so Sanskrit is a great language yeah. because they figured this stuff out. So there. Are, there are different states of consciousness. There's awakening and there's all this. Yeah. Thing. So like we can even understand this from like a psychiatric perspective. So let's understand like what the steps on the ladder are. And it's, it's actually surprising how like easy it is to understand. So the first is we have thoughts, but thoughts are not reality. Correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. So we can be wrong about stuff. Mm-hmm. So what is an unhealthy mind? The most unhealthy mind is when thoughts are reality. So if we talk about people who are in acute psychosis, these people are delusional, they're hallucinating. These thoughts are by definition not real, but they believe they are real. Mm-hmm. So the distance between thoughts and reality is very small for people who are actively psychotic, okay? These are, the, this is the most unhealthy. Then what happens is we start to get into something like anxiety, where anxiety, the thoughts, you're not, uh, you, you know they're not 100% real, you come back every now and then you realize I'm just in my bed and it's 2 a.m. <laughs> right? But you are attached to your yeah. thoughts. You can't let them go. So, so it, even if you look at the neuroscience of anxiety, what happens is when our amygdala is active, potential things feel more real, mm-hmm. which is survival. It's adaptive. So when I think about like, okay, if I see a snake, I have to, I don't think about the danger of the snake as hypothetical. It's not a hypothetical danger. When I see the snake, my brain is like, oh, shit. That danger is real. We got to treat it as if the danger is real. Even though I haven't been hurt, but I am treating a hypothetical Mm -hmm. possibility as a reality. Yeah. Anxiety is is an extension of that. It's an extension of that. There might be a
2: snake behind that thing. And I saw a snake here yesterday. You're you're
1: worried. And then your life is determined by your thoughts. You start living your life based on your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what happens is like another good example of this is like a breakup where when you first get dumped, let's say, You start to think all these thoughts that feel real. No one will ever love me again. It becomes a truth. Mm -hmm. I'll never find love. I'll never find love. This person got away. I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And you can tell that person logically, bro, that's not true. Or or, girl, that's not true. Like, it's not true. But you believe your thoughts are true.
0: Mm.
1: And then even as people heal through the process of breakup, they start to understand, okay, my thoughts about this are not true. I will find love. And so the more separation that you get between your thoughts and reality the healthier your mind becomes. And then like we start to enter into the realm of detachment. And once we enter into the realm of detachment, then sort of what starts to happen if something bad happens and we have a healthy mind, we'll say like, okay, so like this person dumped me, but there are other fish in the sea. I have value as a human being. This doesn't determine my value. And then we start to move past zero. Can, into- I, can I ask a
2: question? Because yeah. even those, one of the things I've noticed is that there's uh, disempowering thoughts and empowering thoughts. A lot of like self help is about shifting disempowering to empowering, which has value. But I've also heard you'd like transcend thought, which yeah. is not I'll find people, but it's I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Know, Here I am now. So,
1: so like the taste of a sandwich does mm-hmm. not change whether you've been you, dumped yes. or you haven't. Yes. Right? Well, subjectively, it can. So, <laughs> so people will, you know, food will taste. Food doesn't taste as good. Yeah. yeah. So there's stuff going on in your brain. Okay. But, um, it, you know, But there, there are ways that you can shift your experience to appreciate a sandwich no matter what.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so what happens is as we start climbing into the phase of detachment, we pass the flow state, by the way, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we enter into the states of meditation. So these are transcendent states of mind. So the first transcendent state of mind is just awareness without mental activity. This is like orgasm. And then we enter into something called samadhi. And samadhi is a temporary state of enlightenment. And it's like, it's super cool. And then when samadhi becomes permanent, that is moksha and that is permanent enlightenment. Yeah. So once you're like that, then you get shattered in some ways. So you see like ego death and ego dissolution. There's even stuff in the psychoanalytic literature about this kind of stuff where like, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. But that, that's like that permanent state where you're living there all the time. Wow. Uh. I,
2: Scary stuff. I don't know, that that, that in me. I, I've felt, I've, I've had the samadhis, and mm-hmm. uh, I feel the resistance. <laughs> to Resist- <laughs> The shattering, I'm, yeah. I'm familiar <laughs> with. I'm familiar with the shattering. Yeah. Um, and first time it happened, it was terrifying. Just just the most terrifying experience of my life. And I did it, well, this can be our new topic, psychedelics. I'm curious of your perspective. Uh, I know that you work with people for, and this is important, especially since you're, you know, a doctor this is not for everybody, but I'm curious broadly what your perspective on psychedelics is. I know you have a lot of experience with meditation and what my people who meditate often that I've seen don't tend to like psychedelics. So I'm curious if there is a crossover for you. Yeah.
1: So, so, um, my perspective (laughs) on psychedelics is kind of like multi-layered. So let's Mm -hmm. start with scientifically. So psychedelics are a tool that human beings have used as part of spiritual practice and healing for thousands of years. Um, I think from a science perspective, we are seeing more and more research about the positive, the potential positive effects of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So as a scientist, as a psychiatrist, you follow the research. If science says it's good, if outcomes are good, then it's good. A couple things that people don't understand is that psychedelics are kind of like playing with fire. So we have the, you know, there's a study, these studies that show that it helps with things like PTSD and we can get into how that works. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's studies that show that it is potentially beneficial. Mm -hmm. Now, the tricky thing there is that usually those studies are done in conjunction with psychotherapy and in highly controlled environments. So you do some amount of psychotherapy, you get stabilized, and then you use psychedelics. And even if you look at the spiritual traditions you have someone like a shaman who's very well versed in it and it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's a tool that can be used to temporarily attain higher states of consciousness. They'll also do things like shut off your default mode network, which is the sense of self. Yeah. And when people have uh, are suicidal, by the way, the default mode network is actually hyperactive. So all they're thinking about is themselves. Yeah. If someone says, hey, I can't make it today, you don't think, oh, this person is busy. You think this person doesn't want to see me. So when someone is de- depressed, all of the thoughts come back to you. My family would be better off without me. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve to be here. I'm suffering. I, 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 and, I, And I. as we
2: described before, because we've used you to mean a number of things, a very limited idea Yeah, so ahamkara, for sure. Yeah.
1: So, so not the true self, yes. but like they just get stuck thinking yeah. about themselves. And so what psychedelics will help people do is break down that kind of barrier of self. And so people don't, they're not stuck thinking about themselves all mm-hmm. the time. And that's specifically how ketamine works, by the way, because it's a dissociative agent. So you kind of dissociate and that can be healthy. But the studies on psychedelics show that, you know, they're done in highly controlled environments that are safe. There are also studies that show that psychedelics can both heal PTSD and cause PTSD. So I've worked with tons of people. I've both. <laughs> <laughs> so I've worked with tons of people and you don't hear about these other people that will, will develop permanent, yeah. like, or semi-permanent mental illnesses based on psychedelic trips. Mm. So the the really scary thing is that a lot of people who hear, okay, psychedelics can heal me, will do psychedelics when they are hurting, and that mm. can be one of the worst times. times. Yeah. So if you're in an acute mental illness, if you're in a depressive episode, manic episode, you know, if you're in a really dark place, the psychedelic you'll lose control of, mm-hmm. um, and then it can actually be damaging. So. I think they're, I'm cautiously optimistic. I was sort of against them, I would say, five to seven years ago. But if we're really being scientific, then we have to follow what the evidence says. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the direction that I'm moving in. So I'm cautiously optimistic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: From a spirituality perspective, it's a whole different ballgame. So when you say that you are terrified of the ego shattering, mm-hmm. what I would say psychedelics is, is it's taking a helicopter to 20,000 feet. Yeah. The problem though is that You can't go above that. You can't really hang out there too long, and you don't control where you go when you use psychedelics. Well, I I would distinguish between the different. So
2: MDMA is much more like, I'm going to take this Fisher-Price helicopter up and have a nice little time. And the one that I'm thinking of is helicopter, rocket ship. No, absolutely no control. You're going and uh, you're getting. Sit back and receive at this point.
1: Well well said. And and we can talk about, you know, I'm using one term, but even... You know, peyote, ayahuasca, DMT, MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, um, ibogaine. Each of these has discrete neuroscientific effects Mm -hmm. and even discrete like spiritual effects. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the basic problem with psychedelics is that you're not trained. Mm -hmm. So the, the difference between psychedelics and meditation, and let's remember, by the way, that psychedelics can't create something new. All they can do, these are chemical substances that activate your brain in new ways. They can't actually lay any new architecture. So, the reason that opioid medication can reduce our pain is because we have endogenous opioids and endogenous opioid receptors. Mm-hmm. So, everything that psychedelics can do, I suspect, can be endogenous. We have all the architecture, right? It's just activation, which I think a lot of people miss out on. Mm-hmm. So the thing about meditation is that when you meditate, you're trained. This is the case of a hiker going up to 20,000 feet. Mm -hmm. So you start at 1,000, start at 2,000, start at 3,000. So you can handle the experience way better. And then the other cool thing is that you can actually go above 20,000 feet. Now, I haven't done psychedelics. You could argue that psychedelics can take you all the way to the top. I have not, I don't believe that. And when I've worked with very, very veteran meditators who have done psychedelics, what I oftentimes find is they will sort of agree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the states of samadhi through meditation, I think, are different. It's This is where it's super hard to describe because I've learned psychedelics. But um, I mean, they, they, psychedelics defy language as well, yeah. they, they, especially the more intense ones. So when I've done certain, so I, I do a lot of like third eye practices and stuff like that. It's kind of weird. But like when I say like, okay, like I've, I've seen into my past lives, for example, everyone thinks that that's like something like, oh, wow, like So you have memories, right, Mm -hmm. of like what you ate. The only difference is I just have memories that are just not of this life. Mm -hmm. And it's not anything special or anything profound or anything weird. I just remember stuff that's never happened to me.
2: And what do you feel a distinguished sense of knowing? Because even in this life, we can have fabricated memories and, you know, that people imagine things that didn't happen or see things that didn't happen. What, do you feel a grounded sense of like, oh, this – of a reality to this that corresponds to a year in human history where there was a, a some continuation of you? And,
1: oh, 100%. So, uh-huh. So this is also where when you meditate a lot, you start to study the different experiences that you have. Mm-hmm. So imagination – is different from experience. Yes. Imagining getting laid and getting laid are like <laughs> night and day.
2: This is one of the things that bothers me about like, you know, NLP practitioners. Like the brain cannot tell the difference between something that is intensely imagined. And I understand the purpose of what they'll talk about when you're visualizing success and those sorts of things. But there is a difference between reality and imagination.
1: Yeah, that's and that's <laughs> because, I mean, so NLP is very functional. Yes. And it can help people, but it's like scientifically pretty hogwash honestly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's a lot of extrapolations the, the real studies behind it are kind of bs yeah uh, but I, I think what they've sort of studied what they've stumbled upon is stuff that is useful in activating things in human beings that will create positive behavioral outcomes mm-hmm. but i think their scientific mechanisms just aren't very good at least based on the last time i checked the got research. it got it well th- didn't mean to yeah. throw
2: you off there so um 100%. difference between reality of getting oh, laid and imagination of getting yeah. laid and that you were going into um where were we headed with that with uh, past lives and the reality or imagination of that and the knowing of the difference. Yep. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so I think maybe like the best place to start is like talking about a patient. Uh (laughs) So, and and this is what's kind of weird. So I've had some patients and a lot of times the patients that come to me are the ones that did not do well or haven't been fully served by other mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll get people who are like refractory cases Um, where they've seen therapist after therapist after therapist and they'll come to me because they want to try something else. Like they've been on all these medications and let's try meditation and see if it can help in some way. So, and and the weird thing is I had this one patient that, and she's given me permission to share this, but we won't go into identifying details. Um, But, you, you know, as we were working on this stuff, this person had seen a psychiatrist for 15 years, phenomenal psychiatrist, helped this person immensely, person is on a very low dose of medication is, is really living life, um, is professionally successful, successful in relationships, successful in family, just really doing a phenomenal job at life v- has a lot to be grateful for and comes to me because <laughs> their, their partner, I met their partner in a different setting and they're like, Hey, I, something about you. I, I wonder like, would you, would you be willing to work with my wife? And I'm like, sure, you know, send, send her my way. So we're working for a while we're talking about all this weird woo-woo stuff and, and things like that. And, and so then one day she kind of comes in and, and she says like, can I tell you something that I've never told you before? And I was like, absolutely. And so this person was so embarrassed because she had certain thoughts mm-hmm. or memories that she knows never happened to her. So even for her psychiatrist of 15 years, she did not feel comfortable like telling the, them this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she like tells me this like, story of like remembering being like under floorboards and she remembers like she's under floorboards and if she makes a sound people will find out that she's there and she remembers booted feet walking above her and her being like absolutely terrified and the source of her anxiety is like she feels this way she feels trapped and she feels like if she does the slightly wrong thing everything is over Mm -hmm. and it was just such a powerful experience to her except it never happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, what we did is process that trauma, and it was like eye opening for her. Mm-hmm. We treated it as if it was real. Now, scientifically, what's going on here? We have no idea. So, it's very possible that she watched a movie when she was three, and the movie was so realistic to her that it traumatized her. So, we don't actually know that this is from a past life. Mm-hmm. But from the, from the sake of, of healing trauma, whether it's real or unreal, and this is what's kind of bizarre about trauma, is oftentimes trauma can be quite unreal, which is really bizarre, but their experience of it is real. And sort of helping people with that kind of stuff, and we kind of came to the conclusion, I just, I just said, you know, I have no idea. I, I offered her this explanation that maybe you watched a movie or something like that could be traumatizing. Honestly, it doesn't feel like, like that to me. After working with you and hearing this, I am beginning to wonder more about past lives okay. and whether these things are real. And now we even have um, some evidence of this. So we know that there's genetically inherited memory. So it's not even that it exper- you experienced it, but that experiences that your parents have can be inherited.
2: Tell me about that, because that defies, not defies, uh, doesn't match my prior understanding, which was, you know... It's not blank slate, but you come in. So how, do we, how have we learned that about memories? So we'll, like, we can follow, yeah, how do we so follow the, a memory? Yeah, so it's,
1: it's, uh, this research is in its infancy, but okay. there's a guy out in Israel who's basically spearheading it. I'm blanking on the name at the okay. moment. Um, but So if you kind of think about it, so if, if a human being sees a snake, so I, I have a five-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. and she saw a snake for the first time in, in the garden, and it was dead. And she completely lost it. Yeah, she yeah. started crying. She ran inside. She was incoherent. She ran away from it. She d- didn't even understand it was dead. And, and so if you sort of think about that, hold on a second. Like, where does that fear come from? It's baked in. So evolutionarily, there are certain things that are like instinctual, right? Yeah. So what Archetypal is instinctual? Even, yeah. It is like knowledge from the past in a weird way. That's a, one way mm-hmm. to conceive of it, right? So we've been programmed to fear snakes, Now there's some evidence, so that may be at the level of genes, but now there's actually some evidence that epigenetic changes, so these are not changes in in the the DNA itself, but changes in the activation or disactivation or the way that the, yeah, basically genes are activated, that can also be inherited. So this is... Gross oversimplification, but it's like you know, in our DNA is
2: the capacity to be easily made anxious, and if mm-hmm. that is epigenetically activated in a generation, that can be passed passed on. down genetically speaking.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, epigenetically, precisely. Epigenetically, yeah. because because
2: it, it the capacity would be present
1: so so more here, broadly than just yeah. Like that here's way. here's the way to understand it. So like in the past, we used to think that the only thing that you pass down is the gene sequences themselves, mm-hmm. but what happens when you go through life? is, epi- so your genome doesn't change, but your epigenetic activation does change. The expression of those genes. The expression of those genes. So this happens every time you get a cold, every time you get a fe- fever, your body actually changes. So there's, there are epigenetic changes that will activate certain genes and shut off certain genes. Mm-hmm. So this is basically the accumulation of your experience in life. Does not change your DNA. It changes you epigenetically. Okay. And then now if we can pass on epigenetic changes, that means that practically what we're doing is passing on experiences of one life to another life. Mm -hmm. So this research, like I said, is really in its infancy, but there's some really fascinating initial studies that are really getting us to like turn a couple things on our head. Mm -hmm. And these studies actually started with Holocaust survivors where children of Holocaust survivors exhibited some symptoms of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so the prevailing theory was that based on the way that these children were parented, yeah. that's what caused the changing. It's not some change. It's not some genetic thing. It's like nurture. The environment of growing up with a Holocaust survivor will sort of induce some symptoms of PTSD. Sure. And there's definitely some of that that's true. But the more that we've gone into the science, we've the more, more we've realized that nurture does not explain the whole effect.
2: Interesting. Wow. So what... Well, let's do intuition first. Third eye practices. Um, I've been, I have a deep, had working on a deep resistance to gnosis, if you will. Uh, Knowing without constructing an edifice. I have loved analysis and piecing things together. And I, you know, when I look at my own, it's it's because that's more easily communicated, shared and understood Mm -hmm. by most people. Yep um intuition as i've come to develop some limited well probably less than limited but as i allow more of it in it's i experience these complete packages of knowing things that i oughtn't know and it doesn't mean um that i'm going to predict the lottery or anything but it's even just as simple as like what is right for me Mm -hmm. in terms of a career move or something like that that wouldn't make i I, i'm not constructing it logically but there's a sense i'm curious and and I've, i've seen tremendous value How does one deepen one's connection to
1: intuition? You mentioned third eye practice. You mentioned... um, So I think the first thing that we have to do is understand the nature of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the yogis did a fantastic job with this. And once we understand the nature of knowledge, then we can understand how to cultivate intuition. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that the yogis understood is that there are two kinds of knowledge. One is vidya, which means book knowledge. So this knowledge is intellectual is transmissible and is like you can record it, okay? The second kind of knowledge is nyan. So nyan is like knowing or understanding. So you can co- convey information or facts, but you cannot convey understanding. Mm-hmm. So this is where if we sort of understand what intuition is, what is intuition? It's not vidya, it's nyan. You can't calculate your way to knowing. You. It's impo- We'll get to this in a second. Um and so these are two fundamentally different camps of knowledge. One is facts, information, transmissible. The other is understanding, knowing, experiential. Mm-hmm. So a really good example of this is, once again, sex. So you can't, I mean, no matter how much porn you watch, you're not going to know what it's like to have sex. You can even, if you watch a ton of porn, you can theoretically become a professor of sexual Prowess, and prowess, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, so here's how you should do kind of lingus. Here's how you should do this. Here's how you, you can do that by just watching a bunch of porn. I mean, I know it's fake, but you, you could sort of study, you can study a topic, right? And this is what academia is. It, it's kind of like, and it's, worth, it's really bizarre. I went when, to
2: business school with people that were 20 year
1: veterans of business school
2: who had never run a business. And yeah, right. what so, it was. So there,
1: and, and that, 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 that information, that knowledge has value. Mm-hmm. We're not saying that it, it doesn't have value, but and so that's like information, the second one is Nyan, which is understanding. Now, the biggest mistake that a lot of people make is if you think about like a book, a book has information, but all of the knowledge actually comes from within you. I know it sounds kind of weird, but when I read a book, if the book is really if the information is in the information is in the book, but the understanding is not in there's the book. There's a resonance. There's a occurs. resonance. Yes. So, so in the yogic sense, actually, what they actually believe is that there isn't any understanding or even decent information, even in books. What the book is is a trigger for your internal understanding, mm-hmm. and we all know this because there's a, it, there's this experience of I don't get this. I don't get this. I don't get this. I'm going to read it once. I'm going to read it twice. I'm going to read it three times. I don't get it. But if the understanding was in the book, reading it once, if you're paying attention, should be sufficient. Mm-hmm. But even if you're paying attention, it may not be sufficient. Mm-hmm. Versus you come back to that same book a couple of years later, you go, aha. <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's the aha. So the yeah. aha is the moment of nyan. Mm-hmm. So even in the most extreme sense, All understanding comes from within. Not a single bit of understanding comes from the outside world. This was my
2: experience of Eckhart
1: Tolle. was, what the hell is this? And then I came back and went, oh, geez. (laughs) Yeah, right? So you have that aha moment. So that's nyan. So now if we understand like what agna chakra practices are, so those are third eye practices. Those are practices that, so we have a trigger of information out here and an understanding over here. And then the interesting thing is that the state of your mind determines how well the trigger triggers understanding. So I'll give you an example. If I'm reading a book and I'm in a burning building, my understanding is going to be zero. Mm -hmm. If I'm in a flow state, I'm appropriately caffeinated, appropriately rested, then the trigger will trigger the understanding very easily. So now we understand that triggering the understanding is not based on the book because the book is static in all scenarios. The state of the human being determines the level of understanding that you get from outside sources. Mm-hmm. So now if the state of the human being determines it, to what percentage does the state of the human being determine it? Now, a lot of people will think like, is it 50-50? But this is where you can understand things entirely within yourself. Mm. There are cases of creativity. Everything becomes a mirror. Uh, yeah. there, there are cases where you can actually develop a truly original idea, right? And if it can happen once then we get to Chakra practices. Mm -hmm. So Chakra practices are practices which cultivate your connection to that within you which understands. And the more that you cultivate that connection, I kind of view it like a pipeline, like most of us have straws. But as you do these practices, you cultivate like more and more of a pipeline. Mm -hmm. And the reason that like our content is successful, this is what's kind of weird, everyone thinks I'm a good psychiatrist. I mean, I'm a good psychiatrist, I'm sure. But I'm actually not like, the best psychiatrist in the world, the reason that i 'm so good at interviewing people is because I cheat, and what I do is I rely on my Agna chakra to give me insight into other human beings mm-hmm. so it's not even like psychotherapy or anything like that. I'm actually leaning into meditative stuff, which is why I can have a conversation with someone for like fifteen minutes and like understand what they need yeah but I 'm leaning on insight i'm not leaning on science or mm-hmm. psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than have a uh, decision tree flow. If yep. they say this, then we go
2: here. There's a holistic experiencing, and then a knowing.
1: Yeah, of, and and yeah. I would say I do both. Right, so there are times where I access Vidya and like mm-hmm. from scientific outcomes and stuff like that. It would it would be. Malpractice to not use those disciplines. Of, of course, and I think on the flip side, all of the truly great therapists and psychiatrists also tap into the knowings, and they there's tons of literature about that as well,
2: yeah, wow, gosh, so much uh, <laughs> try to, how do I even begin this? It's wonderful to go to therapy, and that's been my experience, but a good therapist is not it's not the person who's read the same books as the other person. There is an additional quality of. You call it intuition. I, I don't know how to pronounce the word that you just said, but, uh, and also a relationship that I've seen is very important. Mm-hmm. So I encourage people to do therapy while understanding that your results may vary wildly depending on your experience of the person that is sitting across from you and the state that you're in when you, when you enter into it. Um, what are practices to widen that flow?
1: Yeah, so I mean, so we, we have a guide to meditation where we talk about all this kind of stuff and I'll mm-hmm. teach like a series of agni Chakra practices Um, so I think that like, uh, a couple, like a couple of simple practices. So one, the first one that you need to do even before you do a meditative practice, which is a cleansing practice is something called Trataka or fixed point gazing. Mm -hmm. So candle gazing is really common. Basically you, you stare at a candle flame for an extended period of time without blinking. So you'll go without blinking for three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You build yourself up. Yeah. Should be done under the guidance of a teacher. And then there are other kinds of practices that you can do. I'm going to like speed run them here, but... And you really have to, like, learn how to do it properly. But uh, so the next practice that I would teach someone is if you close your eyes for a second mm-hmm. and you breathe, I want you to notice the breath in your nose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Where do you feel the breath in your nose? In my sinus. Okay, so, so close your eyes. And now I want you to follow. So you can probably detect temperature, right? What, what does it feel like when you breathe in? A little bit cooler. Okay, and point to point with one finger to where you feel the coolness of the breath in your nose. Okay, now I want you to go a little bit higher and look for the coolness there. Can you feel it sort of towards the top of your nose or bridge of your nose? Yeah, I can feel it start to to sort of climb. Okay, okay, close your eyes. <laughs> Cheating. Okay. okay, so now. You said you can feel it climb. How high does it go? Pretty uh.
2: Yeah, I, I can feel
1: it all the way up to the top. Yeah. Which is fucking weird. Yeah. Right? So, you know this whole idea of chi or prana,
0: life yes. energy? Yes,
1: So, does your, does your breath no. actually travel <laughs> to the top of your skull? Not in my understanding. Absolutely not, right? If it did, you're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to take you to the emergency room right now. Mm-hmm. If you've got air... At the top of your skull. That's a real problem. The other thing is your brain doesn't even have sensory nerve fibers. Mm. You, you can do, you can cut into your brain and you won't feel a damn and, thing. And yet. You can feel it. Yes. So what I would, so, so this is diagnostically like you're in good shape. I can mm-hmm. tell. shit on <laughs> I, I, I can assess you based on where your awareness is. And I would bet that 90 to 95% of people who end up watching this podcast do not feel it at the top of their head. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't try to imagine it, you shouldn't yeah, yeah. look for it. And so what 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 you want to do is you just want to f- feel it here. That's the first step. And then you want to it's kind of sound kind of weird, concentrate your breath into your third eye. Mm-hmm. And as you concentrate your breath into your third eye, you'll start to feel other things. And then we have another thing uh, another practice which which Twitch and YouTube love called charging the laser beam mm-hmm. where we 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 do something where we like evoke a like, it, it, so I asked vision. chat, not vision. <laughs> so we did this practice and I was like, okay, I mean, dude, vision,
2: the, uh, the guy with the, the laser beam here in uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh he yeah. He shoots I, a laser beam at his third eye.
1: So, so I asked <laughs> chat, I, we did this, this practice and I was like, what did this practice feel like? And one person was like, it felt like I was charging a laser beam yeah. on my forehead. So it li- literally feels like the accumulation of an energy. Hmm. Like here, and it's just bizarre, but I think it's a really good description of it. But this is the kind of thing where once again, it's neon because if I describe it, Like people can be like, what the fuck does that even, no one knows what it feels like. But once you do it, I also detect it. Everyone detects things in a slightly different way. So what I've sort of found is I detect a crumbling sensation that feels like plaster, like falling off of my forehead. Mm -hmm. And the more that I've like broken away that plaster, the more it sort of feels like the third eye kind of opens up. That's awesome. That uh, reminds me, gosh, so many things I, I,
2: we can talk briefly about before you have to go and I did want to make sure we've got about 15 minutes now from when you had originally said, but um, it reminds me of chakras and uh, we got to talk a little bit about some of the Eastern modalities that are valuable. I have found recently that some understanding of chakras and some reading into it has been profoundly powerful. For me, the value has been that I have focused a lot on heart and wanting to be more loving, but going to the root, and addressing, you know, the, the one at the base of the spine associated with safety is foundational. For at least, you know, not that I couldn't love in any capacity, but for me, that starting the house on, you know, at the bottom floor, because I've, I've done other stuff that has been valuable and I haven't been a complete slouch of a human, but uh, in addressing safety, different possibilities begin to open up. Uh, and I'm just curious, that's my experience, but how how do you apply, use, teach chakras? Do you teach that sort of
1: stuff? Yeah. So if we want to talk about chakras, w- what I'd sort of say is like, instead of trying to do too much, let's mm-hmm. do a let's couple of things less. and let go of okay. the rest and we can maybe do it later. <laughs> sure. Um, so let's understand a couple things about chakras. So chakras are, in my opinion, sort of a hundred percent real and mostly BS mm-hmm. at the same time. So A lot of people talk about chakras, but don't actually haven't been initiated by like a guru into like tantric kundalini practice. Mm -hmm. And so they like have this, they have vidya, they have this intellectual understanding of it, which doesn't make any sense. So I'd say that 95 to 99% of the crap I read about chakras is sort of informationally correct, but people have no idea what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So let's also understand science. There's no scientific evidence of any of this crap. People have been looking for it for a long time. Um, there is, right now, the, only, the best prevailing theory, there's actually a researcher at Harvard who's detected outside of nerves, there are channels in our interstitial space that have a unique conductance. So this is like meridians, like energy lines and all this crap. They're not blood vessels, they're not nerves. But there's, this is the best evidence I've seen and it's super, super weak, to be honest. So scientifically, this stuff doesn't really exist. From a clinical perspective, now this is where things get interesting. So from, as a clinician, I can teach meditation and that can be okay because meditation is an evidence-based practice. And we have no science that tells us that teaching someone a chakra-based meditation is superior or inferior to teaching a regular meditation, mm-hmm. okay? So as, as a scientist, I can't, I mean, as a, as a clinician, I can't teach people practices that there is data that this will be harmful or not helpful. Mm-hmm. That would be malpractice. But the way that I do it is I actually totally believe in this stuff. I mean, I've done chakra work myself. I think it's really powerful and profound. And I've seen clinical outcomes that are really, really good when I focus on chakras. And but we it gets kind of complicated. So so sort of like from a science standpoint, and I'll even explain this to my patients. It's like I'll say, look, we have tons of evidence that mindfulness is helpful. I'm gonna teach you a practice that qualifies as mindfulness. But mindfulness is like 5% of what we know about meditation. I've gone to India and I've learned all this other crap. Are you interested in trying some of this stuff that I believe based on this non-scientific tradition could help you? But from a science standpoint, these are the expects, uh, These are the, the benefits that we can expect yeah. based on the studies. Sure. What do you think about this? Do you want to learn a standard practice? Do you want to we- learn a weird, foofy practice? Here are also the safety things that we need to think about because I, I do a lot of teaching around harms of meditation, like meditation-induced psychosis and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I don't do like hard or powerful kundalini practices with patients. Um, And so then we kind of talk through that and they're like, okay, fine, let's give it a shot. And so what I find is that based on where someone is in their chakras, those kinds of meditations really help them achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. So muladhara chakra you're talking about is the base chakra. That's where you're thinking about safety, but that's also where addictions live. Mm -hmm. So then our our base primal needs are like sort of in the muladhara chakra. So if someone, if I'm working with addiction patients, and I even did a very small study of this at McLean Hospital um, and presented uh, kind of essentially a pilot, but then started Healthy Gamer and that all went by the wayside. But even really found like some really cool things and like all the patients that I worked with, you know, my superiors kind of knew that I was doing this. I was like, hey, I want to teach this meditation stuff. We'll see how it works. They all love it. Um, They started to feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had good outcomes. We don't know that the outcomes were actually any superior to like what standard addiction treatment at McLean is. McLean is like one of the best hospitals in the world. Um, So we don't really know from a data standpoint. And then there's also a decent chance that there's a healthy placebo effect, right? Because here you've got this guy who studied for seven years to become a monk and he's like, you know, at McLean Hospital, which is like the top psychiatric hospital, and we're like at this place, we're at he's this rehab, secrets, yeah. and he's got these like secret things that he's going to teach you yeah. and the patients are like, yeah, right? Like, let's go. Mm-hmm. And so even that psychological effect could be responsible, it may have nothing to do with the chakras, yeah. right? So we have to be sort of clear on the science there and what's responsible for it. All that stuff being said, I think the stuff works. Mm-hmm. And so when I teach people stuff, chakra oriented practices, I find that they move in the right direction. Placebo could be responsible for it. But swadhisattana chakra, which is kind of the the pubic chakra, for example, is all about relationships. Manipura chakra is our, uh, our navel chakra is all about metabolism and digestion. Mm -hmm. So even if we think about digesting traumas or processing traumas, I'll have people work with Manipura chakra stuff. Mm -hmm. Heart chakra stuff is all about love and compassion and all that kind of stuff. So we'll do that kind of stuff. Um, Vishuddha Chakra stuff, which is your throat chakra, is all about the accumulation of power and achieving things in the outside world. Hmm. So when I get people who are like managing directors at major investment banks who are like, I want to achieve this thing, or I work with entrepreneurs that are like, I'm going to build this thing and I want to make it real in the universe. I'll teach them like Vishuddha Chakra practices. Now, sometimes they need other stuff first. If they're sitting with dramas, we're going to work with that. And then it's the accumulation of power. And then at the top is understanding so and then there's a crown right and then there's a crown but the crown is um, completely Advait so it has no qualities to Ah, it ah awesome so and there's no is
2: there one that's up here too no
1: okay so the other there's no there's no practices for the crown chakra okay that's like cool can't can't send energy (laughs) there I like it that's awesome so you just that's just luck or RNG okay You have to do the Buddha thing. So Buddha, right? He was like, F it. I'm going to do all these practices. He got his Kundalini all the way to the yeah. this chakra and then nothing was working for the rest of it. He says, screw it. I'm done. And then it rises to the top. That's so cool. Yeah. I love that. All right. Well, I we've got about
2: five, six minutes. Is that enough time or we can just uh, pause it for a broad metaphysical overview? Because I really am fascinated by your your belief in reincarnation, the the chakras, they imply a very different reality than most Westerners have come to know. And I, the way that you uh, caveated everything that you just said about like, look, I, I, I'm responsible to the science. I'm responsible to the placebo effect. I have to be aware of these things. And I also have this experience that leads me to a broader understanding. I'm, I'm curious for my own self, um, what direction... i have a a tremendous amount of curiosity and so just knowing a little bit about what you think this thing that we're all doing is or isn't is uh interesting to me so i don't know if this if you have enough time to
1: i don't understand what your question is well okay
2: so are we all into like there's like a fixed number of individual souls reincarnating through various bodies at some level we're all one at some level Uh, yeah
1: so okay so like what is the fundamental nature of reality yeah, that's, sure. it's a big question. We can do it in five <laughs> minutes. So, so let's understand a couple of things. So let's start with science. So I believe that science will, this has already started to happen. Science has started validating certain Eastern concepts. So meditation is a good example, right? So people have been med- meditating for thousands of years. Now, the really cool thing about psychedelics is pe- experienced meditators have been shattering their egos and being like reborn into like healthier, less suffering beings. This has been going on for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Now we know through brain studies and stuff like that, that this deactivates the default mode network. This is what kind of destroys. So the deactivation of the default mode network is the neuroscientific correlate of the subjective experience of breaking down the self and being connected to the universe. Mm -hmm. There's also really weird scientific studies that we've got, which are super cool, which is... One study, I think on DMT, found that 94% of people who use DMT report contact with otherworldly beings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this becomes kind of weird because what does this mean? Does this mean that they exist? So I think that DMT could be the next telescope. So if you kind of think about a yep. telescope, you look up into the night sky and 8 billion people on the planet won't see anything. And then I look into a telescope and I see something that 8 billion people cannot see. But anyone who looks through the telescope can verify that experience. Mm -hmm. So I think psychedelics are really interesting because they may be the avenue through which we understand or detect other kinds of things. Mm. So... What is the nature of reality? We're not sure. There's also a lot of, I would honestly, like quantum mysticism is a really, really big field where people will like write books about the quantum nature of reality and consciousness. And I think honestly, a lot of that stuff is BS because they don't really understand quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of that stuff is like interesting, but from I'm sort of like science mind brain, right? So we what we do know is that there are subjective experiences which are shared amongst human beings of things that transcend our scientific understanding mm-hmm. i know that was like a heavy sentence but
2: yeah well i think w- what you're saying that has been the thread throughout this is i which i love is that you do not discount the subjective in your ver in your external ob- objective which is not the right word verification and uh attention to the placebo effect and curiosity of other people can this be replicated and i think that's so missing in so much yeah, so, of treatment. It's so, awesome.
1: I, and that's because in psychiatry, we have no objective evidence mm-hmm. of the mind. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we do anyway. Yeah, yeah which right? is often so, forgotten. So, so, so like we, we, have, we have neuroscientific correlates yes. of the mind. So we know that you can get limbic activation, which correlates with the subjective experience of emotion. But the idea that you're a conscious being is, you know, I have to take your word for it. I mean, that's we, we've, been, we've been looking for consciousness in the brain and we haven't been able yeah, to yeah. find it. So does that mean that consciousness is unreal? Well, like each of us experiences it. Yeah. So I think this is the way that I sort of understand it. So if you think about like, let's say a sheet that's drying in the wind, our eyes are able to detect the sheet. But if a, if a breeze blows past, we can't see the breeze, but we can see the physical correlate mm-hmm. of a breeze. Mm-hmm. So right now, if we look at neuroscience, we can, it is the physical correlate of subjective experience but which one is real this is when we get into philosophy so I don't think that the physical world is the only form of reality that exists Mm -hmm. it is just the one that is the most verifiable that we're kind of the best at Mm -hmm. right so even for example if you look at energy energy cannot be seen it can be detected we can extrapolate it right so we can clearly see a wave moving through water but if I biopsy the water molecule I will never find energy Mm -hmm. right it's just a fundamental different kind of thing it exists and we can measure it in a lot of ways and stuff like that but but it's kind of like it's weird they're like different layers of reality is the the best way that i would put it Mm -hmm. and if there are physicists out there that are like you know you know we can detect energy in a lot of different we can detect it but that doesn't mean that it has physical form it's not tangible that's that's what i mean to say energy is not tangible but it exists Mm -hmm. so now if you look at the yogis they say here's the nature of the universe the most fundamental thing is actually something that they call cosmic consciousness or brahman and cosmic consciousness coalesces into energy and energy coalesces into matter mm-hmm. so it's really fascinating because even in texts that are thousands of years old they'll say in a small amount of matter is an exponential amount of energy e equals mc squared yeah. e equals mc squared and now we're getting into quantum physics but yeah, yeah but but it's, and it's still they, they also say something else which is that in there's E equals MC squared and there's something else, which is like C or like capital C consciousness equals E something squared. So in a small amount of energy is a exponential amount of consciousness. Now from the world of physics, what the fuck does that mean? I have no idea, (laughs) right? So I don't think science has gotten that far. And this is where I think a lot of the quantum mystics will make interpretations. So they'll say that, for example, if you look at things like the observer effect, that consciousness actually causes so reality exists as a probability waveform, and when there's a, a there is an observation, and this is where people get confused about the physics term of observation because I don't think it means consciousness mm-hmm. that we collapse a probability waveform into a, a reality because it needs to be interacted with and so yeah like, yeah so 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 and I think that's where like people don't understand fundamental yeah. physics when they're like when they're gurus mm-hmm. um and and so i I But that's kind of the nature of reality according to that stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, this is also where there's like disagreements. Okay, so like what is a soul? So the the idea is that we have this cosmic pool of consciousness and a drop of that consciousness goes and inhabits a body. Mm -hmm. So it's a drop of consciousness that has a physical body, has a mental body, has like a form. And then when the body disappears, that the drop of consciousness can move on. Now, this sounds super fancy, but I don't think it's like actually that fancy. And there's also disagreement between Hindus and Buddhists. So what Buddhists say is that there's matter, there's energy, and there's consciousness. And what we'd say, simply what consciousness is, is subjective experience. So you experience stuff. That's not an energy Mm waveform, and it's not a physical thing. But you like taste, and you feel, and you like, and you dislike. There's a you there, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that neither matter nor energy can be destroyed, so when, you, when your body breaks down, you turn into mushrooms. Mushrooms turn into whatever, and that eventually yeah. will be another human being. We're stardust. We know that that's scientifically true. In the same way, energy cannot be created or des- destroyed. So the energy of your metabolism, the kinetic energy that you have, you can transfer that kinetic energy into building a bench, right? And then there's like some energy stored in there. Mm -hmm. and implied
2: in that is that my memories are not merely stored in the collection of neurons in my brain but there might be
1: some potential consciousness mechanism by which they would survive my body hold on we'll get to that so the buddhists believe that in the same way that we can shatter your body into a thousand pieces and it will no longer have the identity of your body we can shatter your energy into a thousand pieces and it will no longer have the identity of your energy i mean like physics wise okay Mm -hmm. like mitochondria level we can shatter your consciousness into a thousand different pieces and it will no longer be your consciousness. Mm -hmm. That as your conscious being interacts with the world, I don't know if this kind of makes sense, but if you give me a hug, you will create a conscious experience for me. Mm -hmm. So in that same way, like your, and so it's not that your consciousness stays yours in the same way that matter can be shattered. So as you go through life, you are going to create conscious experiences for like thousands of other human beings. And then you'll die and then you will linger in their consciousness in some way. Mm -hmm. And this is also where karma comes in, where like karma governs physical stuff, right? If I break something in two, it's two pieces. Mm -hmm. Karma governs energy. If I lift a bottle up in the air, I've now created potential energy that can then be harnessed. And even on the conscious level, the words that I do or say will affect other conscious beings in other ways. But the Buddhists, I don't think, believe that you carry your memories with your soul from one life to the next. But, and, and if I, yeah, I, I think I, I think I get it. The Hindus believe that you carry something with you. Mm-hmm. Who knows what's real?
2: Cool. Well, I could ask tons of questions, but you've got to get a plane. Thank you so much for making Thank it you. out here. It's been awesome. Where should people go to find you? You mentioned, and I also want to call out, you mentioned that you have a coaching thing and a course that has uh, a number of the topics that we've talked about. In yeah, so,
1: so, um you know, we have a YouTube channel that's Healthy Gamer um GG. <clears throat> we have a website that's www.healthygamer.gg. Uh, if people are interested, especially cause we talked about like the metaphysics and stuff today. So we have a couple of things called Dr. K's guide to mental health. We have one on depression, one on anxiety, one on ADHD and one on meditation. But those are things that are not just the clinical stuff. So they, we explain clinical stuff, but we also explain this kind of experiential stuff. So in the guide to depression, we explain, okay, there's like a clinical illness, but sometimes when people are depressed, they're not ill, they're unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I've even worked with patients where they'll come into my office and they'll say like, hey, like, I don't, I'm not depressed, but I still feel depressed. I'm like, bro, you're not depressed anymore. You're just unhappy. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of talk about a lot of this stuff, um, you know, even like the nature of knowledge and metaphysics is in our meditation guide. And we'll we'll also teach like series of practices for each of those conditions. So practices for anxiety, practices for ADHD, practices for like spiritual development. Um, And then we also have a coaching program, but that's kind of like divorced from a lot of this stuff. So we'll help people do things like find purpose. Um, there's good data behind our, our programs. Beautiful. We just presented our, our findings at the American Psychiatric Association just about helping people find purpose in life. And what we sort of find is that when they find purpose, depression and anxiety get better. But we don't treat depression or anxiety. We help people like build a life that like sort of builds resilience and then the mental stuff gets better. Cool. So if you guys want to check that out, you know where to go.
2: Thank you so much for, Thanks, for making that out here. It's been yeah. awesome.
1: I can't wait till round two. Yes. Gosh, we got to <laughs> do
2: it. I have so many more questions. Thank you. Okay. Take care, man. Bye. Beautiful.